0: Well, that's exactly the right song to be singing before we get into today's word, that's for sure. To be focused on what is going on in the heavenlies at the same time as what's going on here is a really good perspective to have in church in general, but also really helps us engage with our, today's passage as well. If you've got your Bibles on you, if you've got your devices, Whatever works for you. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 is what we're going to look through today. And um, if you have, again, the YouVersion Bible app, there is uh, a notes section in that. And if you are not sure how to access that, nudge someone beside you who hopefully has worked it out. And um, if you look in the events section of that app, uh, you'll find a fair bit of notes about today's message in there. And, um, And if you're lost, follow the Facebook page. Our link for it is on there as well. So we are continuing a series that is titled Hebrews Greater Than. Of course, we're looking at the book of Hebrews and, um, and uh, uh, we have been, um, at the moment, we are in the middle of, of studying some key elements of the work of Christ as our high priest. And I made this statement last week that I, I believe that understanding Jesus this way deeply matters in how we understand Christ, in how we relate to him, in, in how we, we, we deal with him on a daily basis, in how we understand what is going on between him and the rest of the Trinity and the ministry that is going on. It's deeply important that we understand who Jesus is in this regard. It adds weight, it adds substance to this idea of just, yeah, Jesus died for me. How does that work? priest is where it's at the understanding of him as a priest really matters here now we learned last week that a priest as it was understood in the old testament had a higher standard of living than literally any other human on earth it was a really high thing you had god's chosen people and then out of that chosen people you had the the holiest group set apart for the task of being the priesthood. the people that were anointed by god to do the job And you needed a group of people to be an absolute cut above the rest because Jesus had to become, one to operate in that same sort of sphere. And of course, he is the best of the best of the best, even in human speakingly. But of course, because of his deity, he just adds so much strength to that. They were set apart for the purpose of ministering in a sanctuary. Their role in God's community was one of mediating a covenant that existed between God and His redeemed covenant people. And this old covenant, and this covenant in the Old Testament had two major expressions. I referred a lot last week to the one that was made between God and Abraham. And uh, this is one that sits, it's like an umbrella for the whole of Scripture. All of it. It, it definitely points uh, to the work of Christ in a massive way. And, um, you know, it, this, is, this is where the one-sided deal of covenant was made, where Abraham, in Genesis 15, is told to lay out animals. And, and we don't know this from reading, but what was being done there was a covenant-setting arrangement. Cut animals down the middle, lay them either side. And what would happen is that a trench would form in the middle of those two places where the blood from all the animals met. And when a covenant was being made between, say, two kings, and they wanted a peaceable deal, or they wanted a really hard-hitting agreement, the two kings, or the two people making that agreement, would then walk through that trench where all the blood was. It will wash up to their knees, and and the idea was that if I break this covenant, I understand it's going to cost me blood. And both parties would come to that agreement. And and God tells Abraham to set up everything in a way that he as a human understood things to be, that a covenant was about to be made. But then we read that God passed through that thing. It was the the, the burning pot that, that went through that, consumed everything. Why? Because it's like God walked through that, taking all the blood around his ankles and said, Abraham, don't you worry about it, I got it all covered. In doing so, God took on responsibility for both parties in the case it was ever broken. This points us to the work of Christ, who did in, fair, in fact bear the consequences of that broken covenant when man broke it. The other element of this is the Sinai covenant. The one put a place in the wilderness through Moses. And here was shown again a God who is covenant-keeping and deeply committed to, uh, to his set-apart people who are descended from Abraham. He is still committed to relationship with his people. He's still committed to the people actually having a way where they wouldn't bear on themselves the blood of failure. Instead, he, he, he prescribes a clearly laid-out law with a sacrificial and ritual system put in place to atone for those failures when they failed to keep the law of their God. This covenant is applied and sealed with blood of animals offered. We'll explore this shortly in the second half of this chapter. So when the phrase Old Covenant is used in the New Testament, and particularly in the chapters we're reading at the moment, For the most part, it's actually the Sinai covenant that's being referred to here. It's the one that pertains to being in right standing with God. It's the one that pertains to a a clear law and also a system that dealt with failure. So um, when people were going, I want to know where I stand with God, the Sinai covenant and the Mosaic law was where people referred to. The first one through Abraham is deeply intertwined with the second one because Moses and Abraham are, you know, it's all made around the same promises and the same people. So and they are both very much in play in the, even in the New Testament. And both covenants are fulfilled in the new one. The key link between the old, both the old covenant and the new one is that they involve a priest, both of them. And they both involve a sanctuary. We're beginning to learn this. There is an earthly expression of this in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. And there is a far greater expression in the very presence of God taking place under the New Covenant. We've learned all that in chapter 8. But we'll look at the understanding today that both covenants involve blood. And that's an uncomfortable subject. And we're in school holidays, which is really bad timing. There is an option of this in the Old Testament that had its value. But there is a far greater option in the New Covenant as well, and that's what we're going to explore in this passage. So, as we read today, you can read from your Bibles, but I've got some imagery to work with as we go verse by verse. Imagery that we are going to be familiar with, particularly from the Leviticus uh, series that we did. And hopefully this paints the picture a bit of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. So we're going to read the first 10 verses initially and we'll look at that briefly. So let's just read this together. The screen will hopefully help us enrich that. Verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread This was called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. (laughs) But we can't discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now, I get the impression here that the writer wants to go nuts exploring all this further. It's like there's heaps of rabbit warrens, little trails that they could go on when they're talking about even the contents of the Ark of the Covenant and just dissecting all those individual pieces and starting to flesh that out. But they're stopping. They're using a bit of restraint here because they want to make a simpler point. If you had your head down reading, hopefully the things being described here are a little bit familiar to us because the author is referring back to the tabernacle in the wilderness which we explored in Leviticus, like I've already said. As they write this, we're called to consider some key things about what we already know. First, the sheer
1: splendor of this whole thing. To us, it's
0: just an apparent tent in the middle of the desert. But there is gold everywhere in this thing. And that tent is made of the best materials they could find in amongst themselves. Whatever they could actually you know, stick the hat around to find. Whatever best skins they could find. Whatever best uh, items and fabrics and and. and, and, and furnishings they could find throughout the whole of the people. They gathered it together to make this thing.
1: There's a room that can only be occupied
0: by certain people, the priesthood. And another which simply cannot be entered willy-nilly. Just once a year by one carefully prepared person. In both appearance and culture, there's a very palace-like vibe to this whole thing. With the most holy place being the closest possible thing to being God's throne room on earth. Where the big lightsaber is? That's roughly where the most holy place sat in the, in the, in the, um, art, the drawing of this thing.
1: And there's lots and lots of blood everywhere, a constant reminder in their midst
0: of the complete holiness of their God and King, and also a reminder of their lack of that very trait unless blood is shed on their behalf. And there is significant ministry going on in the tangible and unambiguous presence of their God. God's presence is hovering over that thing day in, day out. And when it moved, everybody else did too. And the idea of the high priest and the inner room that is being spoken of here in Hebrews is actually referring to the Day of Atonement that we've talked about in leviticus it's the day that the glory of god came and rested over what is called the mercy seat the top of the ark and blood is being sprinkled in that direction the blood being sprinkled is that of a bull and a goat the priest's offering which is the bull and that of the people which is the goat And all of this to a Jew was compelling evidence. That is what God called for and accepted from them to save them and maintain covenant relationship with them. There was nothing unambiguous about God's presence over this. It was very clearly stated by God that this is what is required. And it was carefully prescribed and carefully followed. And when it was done that way, things worked. So it shouldn't be surprising that with such tangible things to refer to, even in the church, there would be Jewish believers who couldn't separate themselves from that. To put all their faith in Jesus and to not do these things and somehow feel right. There were some in that church going, I feel like I'm not doing enough. There's no works to do in my religion anymore. What do I do with my hands? What do I do with myself? Am I really in the right place with God? We know that even with the temple curtain torn, this occurred during, the Gospels tell us this happened at the death of Christ. History tells us that the priests were still plugging on with the requirements of the law. I wonder how they went about doing that in the Most Holy Place, trying to pull the curtain across, no peekies. But our writer goes on to tell us that he he, he outlines all the splendour of what's going on here. And then he says this, that despite the sheer splendour of this venue, and the two subsequent ones in Jerusalem. And despite the leaders of blood shed all the time in that venue, and despite the diligent work of the priests,
1: this whole system had significant limitations. It was still a veiled
0: version of what Jesus would do in God's open presence. The glory of God would appear in a smoky haze in the earthly type. The priest was told to burn incense so that the glory of God came down and it was almost like a barrier, a shield between the two. It was a veiled thing because if you saw God in unadulterated glory, you could not. We had a smoky haze in the earthly type, but Jesus would intercede before the Father face to face in the real deal. It's for this reason that our writer previously called the tabernacle a preliminary sketch of the real thing. And in today's passage, what we've just read, it is described as an illustration for a future time. There was another major limitation that the new covenant could deal with so well. The old way had a system where you could take an animal to the tabernacle door. You could have it your offering inspected by a priest you could get in so far to where that, that, that compound, that compound was, was made up. And then the priest would take that thing and would offer it on your behalf
1: and you'd walk away. But it was quite possible that
0: although that's going on behind you, you could still go back to your house Racked and bound with guilt and shame. Still left with your own thoughts of failure. Ceremonially, you knew things were right, but there was still something about the old, old way where there was a very physical thing. Father, and he here is called Christ. This is his messianic name and presence being spoken of here. Even while his divine
1: priestly role is being described.
0: And we're told here that Christ entered a perfect, a complete tabernacle. In other words, one that cannot be surpassed.
1: If we were paying
0: attention in the first bit, you'll see that the outer courts of the tabernacle are never mentioned in this discussion.
1: The only things mentioned is that building in the middle of the compound. Because in the complete one, it's not needed.
0: This is the location, and you'll notice the door and the altar there. This is the location where animals animals are sacrificed. And it was as close as the general public were able to get to God. But we're told here that the perfect tabernacle in the presence of the Father is accessed by Christ our High Priest with blood already in hand
1: and not bulls and goats.
0: The bull blood was not needed because that's the priest's offering. Jesus had nothing to offer for himself. He didn't need to. And the goat blood is not there because Jesus offers his own. And we've already established that is solely
1: for us. And only His blood can suffice in that perfect sanctuary.
0: In the earthly tabernacle, a copy of heavenly things, there is an annual day of atonement, and this is preceded by a time of cleaning house. This involves sprinkling blood throughout the whole venue. You started with the outer court area. You started with the altar of sacrifice, you worked through those areas and then you worked your way inside to that building in the middle and then you went through the holy place doing all that and then then you would then go peer behind the curtain. The high priest would then go behind the curtain and then sprinkle that, from that same vat blood in the direction of the mercy seat. We're told here that there is a similar requirement in God's sanctuary. But mere humanity can't do it without sneaking up the
1: place. If the
0: Day of Atonement points us to the cross, then we can see with confidence that the blood of Christ fulfills the requirement of what it called for
1: in the heavenly sanctuary. And in describing all this,
0: our writer seeks to convince their immediate audience that every part of this new covenant is valid because of Christ. The Old Covenant called for atonement and Christ fulfilled this for good. The Old Covenant called for sacrifices and blood and Christ is shown to complete these requirements in full. The Old Covenant calls for acts of purification and Jesus completes this requirement.
1: And just as the Old Covenant was proclaimed and then followed up with blood, So was the new one.
0: The writer of Hebrews actually refers to Exodus 24 here. We're going to read the whole passage here. When Moses went and told the people of all all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Famous last words, (laughs) eh? Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Twice. Now the, out of the words of two or three witnesses, that's what the scriptures say, right? <laughs> Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the people and the scroll and everything pertaining to the new covenant was sealed in blood.
1: All the requirements of the old covenant involved the blood of
0: animals to both seal and uphold. One day God would uphold the consequences of broken covenant once for all. Humanity would pay in full through Christ the Son. And because of that same
1: blood the new covenant was sealed.
0: And for those who would believe and those who would cling to Christ, not the law, to Christ, not the old covenant, to embrace this covenant anew, this new covenant in full, to see what was promised in Jeremiah 31 as now fulfilled and there to be taken hold of, this would accomplish great things. The new covenant comes with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. No longer will you just say, call out, know the Lord, but you will know the Lord. There will be an intimacy with God that will be different to the old way. And because of this, the always elusive issue of clean conscience can now be a reality. Forgiveness means remembering no more. And a clear conscience brings us to a place of joyful service before our God. It will cleanse our consciences so we can serve the living God, is what is written there. There is a
1: freedom in this.
0: There is a joy. There is a cleansing of conscience. And out of that, I talked about conviction and condemnation last week. The conviction of the Spirit pulls us back to God. It draws us close to Him. And when our conscience is clean, that drawing then leads to service. Not only can I consider myself worthy to be in God's presence, but something about this makes me want to serve Him also.
1: The new covenant
0: changes who we are. We were once bound and enslaved to our sin, but in Christ, the ransom is paid and we are truly free. And we have an amazing
1: inheritance. Just as a will is enacted in the event of a death, so too does the
0: death of Christ lead to inheritance. No longer do we need to keep on somehow striving and working at being saved. There is no annual day of atonement, no further need of any more blood. Everything that needs to be done has been done. We have all access to God entirely through the work of Christ. He did it all and it says once for all. That's once for all time, that is once for all people. And while there's a hope in all that now, there's a future hope mentioned in this letter, which is something not mentioned all that much in the letter.
1: It says there will be a day of reckoning for us all. We'll die once, there will be judgment.
0: We don't like that word all that much. (laughs) And there's Christians writing books trying to avoid the consequences of that, trying to tell
1: us it's not as bad as it sounds.
0: But our Creator, our King and Covenant Keeper, in light of all that He's done for us, has every right to have us face Him that way. But for those in Christ, this is not a day of fear but of celebration. It's a day of salvation. That he's coming for us who are waiting for him, and in other words, he's telling that church there don't drop the ball. Wait, look, hold on to this new covenant, put all your eggs in that basket, go all in with Jesus Get away from the works, get away from all this other stuff. All this was doing was pointing to something that is now fulfilled.
1: your very salvation will come from there.
0: There is a promise of return in this letter. And the new covenant will be sufficient for us on that glorious day. At this time, I'm going to take a moment for us to reflect on all this. Now, I've put this reflection in the Bible app notes to help you do this in your own time in addition to now. But we're going to come around the communion table in a moment.
1: And I would love to do that with an air of reflection. An attitude of seeking. A desire to hear from the Lord in this process, in this
0: time. For some of us, this might be a time where the Spirit actually gives us a sense of assurance that might have been eluding us. with all this talk of things being completely fulfilled in Jesus and all this talk of specific ministry happening in the presence of God on our behalf, that all these things we read about in Leviticus is only a type of something that Jesus is doing in God's presence. How does that speak into your faith consider your devotional life the day your day-to-day interaction with the spirit and with, with jesus how does this speak into your expressions of ministry bearing in mind that all of life is a, is a sphere of ministry How does it speak into the times you are distinctly aware that you are worshipping?
1: But also understanding that
0: our entire life is an expression of worship. And how does this speak into the confidence you have
1: of your standing before God? If you're considering baptism, how does that speak into you? Some of us really walk in heavy doubt. and Am I good enough? What if I stumble? There are different things that stop us.
0: And it's not God stopping us from doing that. Some of it has to do with our own confidence in what Jesus has done for us. Some of, us is, some of it is losing sight of this once for all time sacrifice of Christ. Some of, some, some of it is not understanding that Jesus has done a perfect work in heaven for us, to purchase us, to pay the ransom for us
1: that you and I will never be good enough.
0: But Jesus has done every perfect work for us. And the righteousness we have is only from what is given to us, not because of anything we have somehow earned.
1: Thinking ourselves unworthy in, regard, in light of all that, it's not where it's at.
0: And when we read here of our very consciences being cleaned, with freedom to serve the living God, is that a reality in your life right now? Is your conscience being cleaned? Is the Holy Spirit doing a work where you can actually look in the mirror and go, my past is dealt with and done?
1: At this time, I anticipate some of us might need to do a bit of serious business with God. There's freedom to be had in this new covenant, friends. Sometimes we don't pursue it. Sometimes we don't engage with it. But there is freedom. There is a cleansing of conscience. There is a joy that comes in this. Will you let the Spirit in and deal with some of those things in your life today? Do you need someone to pray with you after the service? Talk to an elder, talk to me, talk to somebody. Let's reflect, let's pray.